It's happening again. Welcome to Work Cookie, a CBOC podcast. As we broadcast around the world, get bite-sized morsels and tidbits from our industrial organizational psychologists, other experts, and the latest research on the workplace to boost your organization's effectiveness. Sign up now at seboc.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from our experts at seboc.com. Welcome. I'm Dr. Jeremy Lokabaugh, Industrial Organizational Psychology Consultant and Workplace Communication and Negotiation Coach. In addition to seboc.com that you just heard, you can also visit my website at turnboot.com. If you're in or getting into the IO psychology field and you feel a little lost in the crowd, you're looking to jumpstart your career and maybe get the answers that your degree program never gave you about what it's actually like to work as an IO psych practitioner, check out CBOC's IO Career Pathfinder membership at cboc.com. Also, we have Tom Bradshaw, voice and speech coach and a damn good actor at that. He is the leading voice and speech coach for the industrial organizational psychology community. Well, hello everyone, and welcome back to our weekly gathering of IOs, HR, recruiters, one actor, and all those people who like to help people in the world of business. Uh, I'm Tom Bradshaw, with me is Dr. Jeremy Lukaba, and of course we have our fabulous collection of expert IOs and HR practitioners who are here to share their expertise and advice. Uh, Jeremy, today, we're going to talk about using group norms as leverage for work productivity and results. That's a long title. That is a long title. And I was too busy looking at all the research and thinking about it that I forgot what the title was. So I'm glad that you mentioned what the title was very specifically as it reads. So thank you, Tom. We're also going to be putting up in any references that we use during these podcasts. So if you're listening to the podcast, you should be able to see it in the description of whether you're on Spotify or iTunes or whatever it may be. Formatting might not be the best. I don't know how it's going to show up on these different platforms. And sometimes we love our, you know, formatting this would be italicized, et cetera, et cetera. So if it's not showing up, uh, we're trying, but it might not filter through all platforms correctly. So that'll be an update. That way, people who are listening to the podcast, you know, if you're driving, you don't have to, you know, try to write things down as we say it. And I'll also share what those are in the chat. And what I'm going to do is I'll pull up a little bit of a notes document as a guide that we can use for today, because each one can be a discussion topic. And of course, we can organically do as we do. It'll provide a little bit of that. So for today, we're talking about using norms as leverage. So many interesting things that come into this. As early as 1905, Joseph Pratt highlighted the importance of group identification or group spirit, social support, and shared hope in psychotherapy groups for tuberculosis patients. We look at psychology and when you're, it's getting its start with the first uh, psychology lab, I think it was in Leipzig, Germany. I used to know the date. Now I think it's like 1879 or something like that. But we look at IO, we still think of it as we have a long history but a short past. There's a lot of things when you look at group norms, there is something called the autokinetic effect that was studied in 1936. And the gist of it is you have a bunch of people in a room and you shine a light on the wall, ask them how much it's moving. The light is moving during particular intervals. And you have confederates, which in studies are, called, are, are the actors, they're called confederates. So think confederate actor, basically they're in on it. And they were testing how much influence other people have. They found that 
yes, there there is influence. So basically, if they have a bunch of actors in the study say, yes, it's moving a lot, then the other people would say, or it's moving just a little bit during this interval. They would say, yes, it's moving a little bit during this interval. The thing was, during the entire experiment, the light did not move at all. The light was stationary. The light didn't move. And I used to do this. There's, there's an old classic three lines experiment where you draw three lines on a, on a chalkboard and then you say which line is the longest or which line is the shortest. And you have people in the room, you know, these Confederates that are in on it. And I would do this during class. And it's, it works so well because, you know, you have four people that say, oh, that one's the, that one's the shortest, but you make them, you know, obviously there's not huge differences. So these effects are real. We're going to get into all the ins and outs of how as leaders and consultants, these types of things can be leveraged for good use, because we're going to look at, you know, how also enforcement too. And we also have, I have some guiding questions that are put up for each of these topics and questions that leaders and, and consultants can ask themselves in terms of leveraging. It also made me think uh, of a personal story that I had with this. I remember I was in the fourth grade. I was in music class. And I think we were late learning to play one of the, they call it a woodwind instrument. We were The flute is a flute, a woodwind instrument, right? No, it's not. All right. Well, I'm going to have to edit that out of the podcast. So we were learning to play one of the woodwind instruments. I remember we're all sitting on the, on, on the floor and the music teacher asked this question. And everyone raises their hand and said, this is the answer. And she said, does anyone think this isn't the right answer? And I remember looking around the group thinking, oh man, going to be good. And I raised my hand because I thought, I thought they were all wrong. And she said, I turned out to be the one that was right. But it, it was going against all, all, all of that. And that just it reminded me because here we're thinking about the kinetic, kinetic effect and the three lines experiment. And I will say that that year during the field day, right after the sack races for the, the school field day. I did win the jelly bean counting contest. Yes, thank you. And because I guessed the correct amount of jelly beans in the jar, not only did I take home the three dollars that was in the jar, I also got to take home the jelly beans. So with that, Tom, I'm going to pull up this screen share and over to. Uh, it was probably a recorder, Jeremy. Every grade four gets handed a recorder. I'm convinced it's a plot to drive parents nuts. <laughs> because they're horrible um yeah and and you know pull that stuff up but i you know i want to share a personal story too when we're talking about norms because when i was teaching in post-secondary every single year <laughs> with you know the first year cohort of acting students most of not most but there was a, often a few that wanted to continue in a clique they wanted to have you know the cool students like themselves in this group. And they wanted to ostracize at least one other member of the group. And it was, it was sometimes a year long project in that first year of getting them out of that mindset and more into a much more collaborative mindset where, you know, the high school clique notion was antiquated at best. It wasn't something that was going to help them in their career. They needed to get away from that and work in a much more cohesive combined social norm so you know how do we uh, eliminate because often people you know if i would imagine if i was an io and i went into an organization some of those norms are already established and i may need to get them out of that norm and into a new norm how yes. the heck do i do that <laughs> yeah and and that that goes back to i think i don't know if it was uh two weeks ago we were talking about that with the, with the change with the freezing and unfreezing of you know, behavior specifically that can also happen with the norms first. And this will, this will, we'll start, we'll start to get into some kind of flow here. One of the resources we have 
is an edited uh, handbook of organizational consulting by Robert Golombowski. And there's tons of info there. One of the quotes that I drew out of that on this particular topic, human need, humans need meaning in their lives and will settle for even some meaning. When you look at the enforcement of these norms, their enforcement occurs, meaning, meaning they're going to work. When individual needs are being met, when there, it would improves the chance of that group's survival. And for those of you listening to the podcast, these are the notes that we're as a group looking at. When they speak to solidify the group identity and when they make things more predictable in terms of attitudes and behaviors and they simplify that workplace experience. So when these factors are accounted for, it's kind of it's kind of like the WIFM. It's kind of like the, all right, what are the norms that there's a what's in it for me? for the group and also for the individuals in the group. And there's a couple of things that can be done. Reinforcement of norms that are working can be done simply through messaging, communicating, here are the norms that you have, here's how they're working. We've recognized that these, that, that these are working for you and making sure that that communication is there as well. If there are norms that aren't working, then you can you know, hey, this is this is something standard. This is something that as a consultant, I'm noticing as a leader, I'm noticing or we're noticing as a team. Here are the the some of the main reasons why these types of norms work well, stick and can be enforced. What's not matching here? Turn it over to you, Tom. Well, the thing that pops into my mind, Jeremy, is we've both on the virtual communication mastery road trip for almost two years now. And one of the things we're hearing about employees in the future is really wanting that sense of feeling of belonging to something greater than themselves, that their role in the organization is puts them in that situation where, you know, it's, it's not just a job anymore. It becomes more to almost the passion project. Is that the kind of norm we want to establish? A little more on that. What else are you thinking about that? Well, it's, it's comes once again to the idea of retaining your employees. And I'm starting to to see a vision out there where if we can create you know, this, this mindset in organizations with employees that it's not just a job, that it's more than that, that it's something they look forward to getting up in the morning and doing, whether it's traveling to an office or walking down the hallway to your home office, but it establishes that feeling of being part of something larger than yourselves, than yourself and wanting to do your best in that situation to support the other members of the team, to not let them down. It seems that organizations who have found that are seeing things like increase in productivity. So by establishing norms, is this some place that we can get to? That's very, very helpful. A bit in there, you, you're, you seem to be speaking more of the larger culture of the organization. On a macro level, yes, that can be done, and that's done through that organizational culture. So when we look at this smaller level for the individual groups, yes, being part of something bigger than yourselves, when enforcement, so I'm reading here from the notes, enforcement of norms occurs when it speaks to or solidifies the group identity. I think that's what a, a little bit what you're getting at. So think about if there's a, the example here is when there's a downsizing. So let's say that there's a big downsizing and your group got through that. Your group experienced the ups and downs, the 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 tears and the joys of knowing that that you weren't being laid off. And then the 
the pain of, of having that type of survival guilt because then your friends did. So now that is part of a group solidification. You're a part of a group. You can identify with that. And that's when we start to look at in versus out groups and this thing called leader member exchange theory, where one of the easiest ways to put it is if you're a fan of a football team and you see a, you know, you're in the stadium, you see a fan of another football team wearing the jersey, you automatically think you're smarter, better. This is, I mean, these are, these things are studied. You automatically think that you're more intelligent than that, than that person. That also goes to the group cohesiveness because then you see someone wearing the jersey of the same team that you like, and it adds to that. I'm part of this. I'm part of this. And that's where we go to this beginning quote up top, Human, humans need meeting in their lives and will settle for some or even any meeting. Sports fans, it's arguable how much meaning does that provide in one's life? You know, I'm a sports fan. I'm not knocking sports fan, but there are there's different levels of meeting. You know, being a sports fan of a, of a particular team has a different level and different kind of meeting than if you volunteer, you know, volunteer at a, a, a community a soup kitchen per se with other people. There's just, it, there's different things that go on, but that type of group identity, when a norm solidifies that, and I'll mention in a positive way, because one of the questions for leaders and consultants down here is how can one prevent toxic team identity, meaning ostracizing attitudes, behaviors, and that's where we get into that inverse out group. The answer to your question, Tom, is a lot of that which may or may not answer your question, Tom. Well, it kind of sort of did, but now I'm, I, I want to ask about, are we just talking about social norms, the mindset of, of the team or the group or the individual, or are we also talking about work norms? And I'm thinking about the remote team that has to establish common ground, such as how and when are we going to work? So are we talking about establishing those type of norms as well? I highlighted here procedures and behaviors. So yes, especially for when uh, you know consultants are brought in, because that adds to the predictability and time, you're looking at different things like time efficiency, those kinds of things. So yes, it's how the how the group flows and how the group works, and identifying all kinds of things. You know what's inefficient, what's a common tension point in a perfect world, what happens for the what happens for these particular employees. So you're looking at you're looking at behaviors. You're looking at attitudes, but you're also looking at what we do as IOs is processes. You know, where can we improve processes in the workplace for improvement? And also, what are the processes, this is important, that help to create an environment that adds to better productivity? That whole kind of thing is you can't make a flower grow faster or more beautiful by yelling at it. You have to provide the right environment in order as uh, blossomy as it can. But I do hear that singing to your plants actually does help. Lee, let's go to you. So there's a couple of things that I was listening through that and, and uh, uh, humans by nature want to be part of a group. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a normal thing. And, and group think is, is a real thing. Uh, mob mentality is a real thing. Uh, you know, you get the guy on the ledge and one person yells jump and all of a sudden all these people are yelling jump. It happens. And then people are horrified after the fact. And um, I remember a scene in the movie Dead Poet Society where he tells some of the students to walk in a circle. And all of a sudden, they're in step. They're all three marching in step. And all the other students, well, almost all the other students, are clapping in time to their steps. So we've created this thing. And then you've got the others that are like, well, I'm, I'm 
you know, I'm exercising my right not to walk. Well, there you go. Um, but one thing I want to emphasize that uh, part of what we're talking about here is behavior modification. And so uh, I want to, to put out a caution there because there is the law of unintended consequences. You may create uh, new norms. You may create new behaviors and they may very well backfire on you and they may be horrible. Uh, so you have to be very, very careful about that uh, and really think through what you're doing because if it can go wrong, it will. Um, and, you know, when you are trying to create new, new behaviors and you got a group and never, not everybody's doing the same thing, you know, part of what you can do is like Jeremy was talking about with the Confederates in the room. If you can get some of the well-liked, you know, the people who seem to be natural leaders, the, the, the cult of personality types or whatever the people tend to gravitate towards and get them on your side and get their buy-in, then you can often make those changes without having to stand up and prophesize in front of everyone that we need to make these changes. Um, but so there are some, some very interesting things that you can do with this. And then, you know, of course you can also do some, some other things as well. And I will uh, let it all in there. Yeah. It's, it's, well, are, 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 Lee, are we, are we sort of getting into manipulation, but if you're doing it for a good cause to benefit the person, then it's okay. Yeah. That's a slippery slope. Right. <laughs> uh, I mean, They'd say the road to hell is paved with good intentions. You, know, you can do something that you think is for their good, and they may not agree. Uh, and ultimately, that could uh, that could blow up in your face. So I would definitely caution uh, when you start traipsing down that path. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Martha, let's go to you. Just to build on what everybody else is already saying, you know, it's so important to pay attention to what's going on. First of all, the culture, the company's culture. I think if the culture is in the right mindset, it will be a lot easier to form groups that you can mold to mirror a certain uh, set of goals or, or a certain purpose. But if the company's culture is in disarray, if it's toxic, then creating a cohesive group will be that much more difficult. And of course, the flip side of that is creating groups. So when people come together, as has already been mentioned, we can do tremendous feats. We can accomplish impressive things. But the, the, the dark side of that is this us versus them. And we have to be so careful not to create that at the workplace because it can turn into anything from uh, workplace bullying to something a lot more negative, if you will. Uh, we, we certainly don't want that us versus them to get out of control. You know, there's a time and place for playful competition, uh, but how far will that go? So we have to be very careful with that because humans have this propensity to come together as groups because that's part of survival. And it over um, a time, it allowed us to accomplish great things. But it also, if we look at history, has allowed some of the most horrendous things to be done to people because they were not part of the right group. So scale that down to the workplace. We have to pay attention to what we're doing. Yeah, I've noticed that people really like to sort of come together for survival. But as soon as we start to talk about, well, who's going to lead us? That's when things, things to start to go wrong. We're going to go to Laura. Hello, Laura. 
going back towards the beginning, what Tom had mentioned and kind of playing off of building the conversation was I think what Tom was talking about earlier about the larger group culture really spoke to the idea of employee engagement to like the larger organization. But when we talk about the group norms, what I feel like uh, Jeremy's trying to pull us towards is that smaller group norm intimacy. And I think one of the key parts, if you're really wanting to leverage these norms to connect to the larger culture and connect to the employee engagement is letting those managers and those leaders whether the leaders are formal or informal, to reinforce the norms that help bridge that gap between what's happening in these smaller little groups, um, teams and niches throughout the organization, and having the managers and leaders ensure that those norms connect to the larger organizational culture, the larger values, and that's what bridges into an employee engagement relationship. But I definitely agree with Lee's comment as well about you're going to get into behavior modification and doing that, doing that well, having a manager who's really thoughtful and sensitive to what a norms look like that will then reflect into a larger organizational value and what that looks like. It's, it's a very complex, nuanced thing, I think. And not, I don't know how much it's really taught or involved in management. Well, that was going to be my question to you is, do they have those skills? I, I, I think it's so much of it depends. In my experience now, I've worked as a contractor in a military community and you get the whole breadth like of experience and exposure and, uh, and perspectives on how to enforce these values. And I've sat through a, a commander's call where he gives uh, a message and I hear what the leader is saying. And then I talked to airmen and they heard the same words. We were sitting in the same conversation, but their interpretation being totally different. And I, it, it's hard, I think, for large organizations to account for all of those nuances and to correct with the norms to Every, realign everything. Everybody has their own filters. They'll hear things sometimes the way they want to hear them. Uh, Jeannie, let's go to you. Well, I just wanted to um, bring about, it depends also on who is managing the change, because if, um, as in my organization, just recently, a person has been placed in a position to change processes, yet the managers who are over her didn't announce the change, didn't uh, address it, she's having an uphill battle, because the leadership above her uh, nobody knows that she's being supported by the upper management and the leadership. And so how does she enact these changes, which are good, cha- uh, good changes, but how does she enact those changes when she doesn't have the full authority support from the upper management? And what happens when one leader disagrees with this leader and then the underlings under that leader conflict with the underlings of the other leader? So really, it has to be a uniform decision and widely accepted. Yeah, 100%. You can't make change if everyone's not pulling the oars in the same direction. Uh, Dr. Ariana, let's go to you. Yeah, I think that what's been said is spot on around culture and needing alignment, especially what what Dr. Martha was saying about having the norms you're trying to enforce mirror goals and purposes, or another word that I like when, when companies have them is to really focus on the values. 
So I think that we should always stick to the basics when initially starting to create norms and just think about what are the basics for a healthy team or organization, like maybe not trying to get them to do something highly specific in a way that Lee was mentioning. We don't want to force people to do anything. We want to just create basic respect and psychological safety that then, you know, maybe the group will grow and evolve in their norms, but really just having some team agreements and principles is I think a good place to start with basic principles about respecting each other, Um, you know, being transparent, not hoarding information, um, not, excluding people from meetings. I think some of the most basic things, if done right, can be very effective for creating team cohesion. You know, I've been blessed that I've spent the last, you know, year, year and a half talking to people like you um, and and getting all this wonderful information. So I just assume that everybody knows this. Mm. But then I go into organizations and find out that this basic information, like treat people with respect, It's just not out there. Like, this is not the common practice of organizations today. So how do we even get them to start? Well, you know, I think there is a lot of varieties in how teams are run. And I think it relates back to the organization's values. You know, I think that in the remote environment where we're able to draw employees from wherever, I think job fit, you know, both with your job fit with your job, but also your organization as a whole, I think that's going to become more important because, as much as possible, we want people on the same page. So I'm the type of person that's oriented towards a lot of group interaction. I want to be like coordinating a lot with each other. I want to have a lot of FaceTime with my team, but not everyone is like that. So I think that's where there's the push and pull of like where we should be. But, you know, continuing to outline and make it a purpose to talk about who you are as a team, what you value, what your goals are, and like, how you come together, I think is really important because those are very basic principles that people can easily never talk about. Uh, let me ask you this too, because, I, and I hate to get back to the generational thing, but I notice millennials and Gen Zers, they look at people my age and the way that we work and they basically go, yeah, not for me. So do the leaders in an organization, as they're constructing these norms, do we need to get away from well, this is how we've been doing it for the last 200 years. Do we need to throw a lot of that out the window and just go, this is a great opportunity for us to restart and to reestablish these norms or just even the basics of how we're going to work? You know, honestly, Tom, this isn't what I've seen to be as generational as other topics. I think that I've worked with many generations in the workplace and I have some very senior people that I've worked with who don't want to engage in teams, you know, (laughs) they're like, I have better things to do. I have tasks to be fulfilling. And if not, I want to be out of work, you know? Um, And I've seen that people younger generation too. Like I'm just a tech person. I'm doing coding. And like, I don't understand why I need a meeting. Like this is just hindering my progress. But then on the opposite side, there's many people of all generations who really like to come together and build coalition and connect. Um, So I think that that is maybe less of a generational one, except for maybe in the leadership style where maybe leaders, you know, expect to demand a certain thing from their employees, when it should maybe more of a conversation. All right. Uh, Linda Ann, let's go to you next. I have a a couple of comments and then a question for for Jeremy to pull this back to the topic and and help me understand really how, where we're going with this conversation is... um, 
related to the, the identified topic because it's, it's a curiosity for me. Anyway, um, I think that, you know, as Laura was saying, that connecting the people to the, the organization's purpose and that alignment that's been reiterated by others as well. And I, I think that having everyone in the organization understand that the reason that they're there is to achieve a specific purpose and it's a guiding light kind of thing. I, I want to challenge the thought that um, humans will settle for some or any meaning. And I think that that is part of maybe, throw this out there, what we're seeing as a difference now in what workers are looking for in their workplace. They're not willing to just take a piece of, well, come here and you get to come to work every day and I get a paycheck. And that's, that may, you know, that's a meaning, but I don't think it's a meaning that's working for everybody at this point. And I think there might be a movement to say, yeah, I need, I need the meaning that I'm looking for. And so I just want to challenge that, um, that thought and, and then bring it back to Jeremy on really how, if we're working to have an aligned organization, with a common purpose, how does that, how do we leverage that as a norm to increase productivity? Linda Ann, I'm sorry, there's no challenges allowed during this. <laughs> <laughs> so you said, so first, it's not necessarily from the, the, the quote isn't necessarily for the workplace. So the quote is humans need meaning in their lives and will settle for some or even any meaning. It's not or any meaning in the workplace. So we think about, I mean, think about all joining cults. Where can your mind go with the different things and the different groups, the different groups that negatively impact people's lives? Because even though that's negative meaning, they're still searching for some kind of meaning. Organized crime. Actually, that's in, that was part of the, uh, in the, in the research, they spoke about organized crime. I'll try to find it. it, it organized crime is one of the main um you know, how, how they did it really well, because the social norms, if I'm recalling correctly, were so specific that they detailed out the behaviors that wouldn't, you know, quoting from the book, it said, I mean, from the research that wouldn't get you whacked and the behaviors that would get you whacked and how. So different behaviors would get you killed in different ways. So it was kind of like, choose how you want to die. Is it death by a thousand cuts? Do this. Do you want a quick and easy? Do this. Organized crime was laid out and looking at this research in terms of the history of social. That's a little bit of a tangent, but back to your point, we search for meaning, even if it's negative. I mean, and look at kids, you know, sometimes they'll display bad behaviors because they want attention. They don't care if it's good attention or bad attention. They just want someone to notice them. So some kids will just act up, you know, maybe they'll at least look at me and tell me, maybe they'll just pay attention. So I think that's where, who this would be, I would love this. This would be a great conversation to talk about all day. I love this. And I'm wondering what you're thinking, but in order to not allow you to spawn right away so that I have a chance at winning this argument, because up against you, Linda, Ann, I'm probably not going to win an argument. So I'm going to go right to the next point and try to get your mind off track. You mentioned how can companies leverage this? What was the, this, the, the group norms. How do we leverage group norms to make, to basically make people more productive? Most things for me go always go back to what is, what, what are things like from the other person's perspective? What's in it for them and having conversations with people 
as I've mentioned before, in a way that when you're done with that conversation, you're so involved with what they're saying that you could write a, th a thousand word paper on. It goes back to that. How can you understand your employee base? How can you understand your team that well that you can look at it from these main points that are up here? Do the, you know, if you want new norms, you've got to make it so that it's helped so that you're speaking to that individual. You're giving them what they want and need from a standpoint of being able to work cohesively as a group is the, is the bottom line. The other reference that is going to be up, it's from Gulenbowski. And the reason I mentioned cohesiveness is kind of the bottom line is that as cohesive, they created this model and they had to revise it because they did all this research. So they really did what they were supposed to. They found that the bottom line was high cohesiveness is associated with high group consensus about norms. So when we're looking at a bottom line for cohesiveness, that's the important thing. And if we can increase that, then we actually get to better groups consensus about the norm. And then you can look at May, Gilson, and Harder, 2004 study, the psychological conditions of meaningfulness, safety, and availability, and the engagement of the human spirit at work, but all the other factors like productivity, job enrichment, work role fit, coworker relations, supervisor relations, coworker norms, self-consciousness, and resources and outside activities, those correlate with three different factors, which are meaningfulness, safety, and availability. And all that falls into engagement. And that engagement falls into back to the group cohesive and the group norms. And then engagement, of course, then leads into productivity and organizational commitment, which means just retention. So all that, everything's interrelated. And you said, how can that be leveraged? If we look at it, what's in it for them? How can we make their group more cohesive and how can we get the group to agree on what norms they want to have as a, as a group? How can we get them to decide and agree on what norms that, that aren't working and what norms that are working? Back to the guidelines for today, how do we do that? Do the suggested or proposed group norms or the ones that might not be working, do they meet the individual needs? Do they increase the chance of group survival, solidify group identity, and make things easier, more predictable? The ones that do are going to have longevity and can reinforce. The ones that don't can be thrown out the door. So we think about this way. So we see under right here, enforcement of group norms occurs when it improves the chance of survival. Widgets example. So we think about it like this. What if there are group norms that aren't working, that are causing the group to lessen its chance of survival? And the example given is, and I'll just read this verbatim, by observing a series of incidents, in other words, a person produces 50 widgets and is praised. A person produces 60 widgets and receives a sharp teasing. And a person produces 70 widgets and is ostracized. By doing that, they learn the limits of the group's patience. So meaning, hey, if I produce more and make everyone look bad, that's not acceptable. This is as far as I can go without being ostracized for the group. That group is less likely to survive because management is going to be alerted and they're going to have to, and then they're going to get into the group. They're going to you know, revise standards, make the work harder for everyone. And they might even lay people off, do re, you know, department restructuring, et cetera. That might be a norm that is, is noticed or a norm that's like that is noticed. It's a norm that's not working for the group. So a leader or a consultant come in and say, hey, this is going on. You're teasing people. That's a group norm. Is that increasing or decreasing your group's chance of survival? And it becomes these questions. And those norms, you know, in a perfect world, they get together as a group and are surrounded by flowers and, and cupcakes. And they say, you know what? That's not, that's not really helping us. 
what could we do to get better? What could we do to change? And then new norms might be changed and inserted into that. And when that new norm is suggested, the consultant, the leader, the team leader says, okay, here's the new thing that we're looking at. Does this improve the chance of the group survival? Yes or no? Does this still, is it still consistent with your group identity? Yes or no? Does it help meet individual needs? Yes or no? And does it continue to make predictable attitudes and behaviors that we're expecting? It's definitely an involved process. Working through these four particular factors and asking questions and breaking it down into the ridiculous, meaning if I'm a leader, yes, this seems a little complex. But now I know that some of the main factors that help with the enforcement of norms. Now I know some of the questions that I can ask. Maybe if I sit down for 30 minutes, write this out, do a bit of a meeting, or just do some observation, or better yet, what have my team members been telling me? What have my employees been telling me that I haven't heard? What have they been telling me that I've just put off to the side? These might be those low-hanging fruit that can help me better understand what the current group norms are and what can be changed to help them. And by being doing something that's helpful to them, we can increase productivity, time efficiency, and all those other good things that help the bottom line. How did you do, Lindan? Did you get the answer you're looking for? The ending part gave me the light bulb moment. And that is, for me, that's kind of a management style where you are working with your team and so forth to figure out what motivates them initially. And then you work to facilitate that process and have it become part of the way the group operates and direct it towards the overall task to be accomplished. Is that making sense? It does. And you're also a great coach, Linda, because you ask these good questions. <laughs> and of course, you're not going to get that aha moment until the end, because otherwise you're not going to listen to my long winded explanation. <laughs> so it's always, I guess if I sit through it, I'll get the end. But it also helps the other person think through it a little more uh, thoughtfully, and sometimes dramatically to get there so that they can discover a deeper meaning. So kudos on that, Linda. Well, thank you. Thank you for everyone's patience while I get there. <laughs> <laughs> and I like the way you sort of, the dramatic way you use that, Jeremy, you sort of built to the climax and you, and you gave Linda Ann that light bulb moment. Uh, Lee, let's go to you. You know, one thing that uh, is very key in here, and it's, of course, it's common thread through a lot of our conversations is the communication factor. Um, I've seen a lot of organizations where there's this kind of white noise between the top and the bottom. And so the top thinks everything's great. The bottom thinks the top doesn't care about them and that, you know, the building's on fire and they're not even going to tell me, you know, that sort of thing. And so it's really important to make sure that you don't have that wall between the two. And, uh, and you know, I saw several when I was, when I was real junior in the military, I was with an organization where, you know, the, the senior enlisted were, were this united front that blocked any and all not positive stuff going up to the upper reaches. And so there were things that could have been solved, but they never got there. And until people at the top went and talked to someone on the other side of that wall and said, Hey, what's going on? How's it going? And somebody was just frustrated enough to let it spill. And so that's, um, you know, it's kind of like that undercover boss TV show where the guy comes in and finds out that he had no idea what was going on in his company. Well, why not? 
you know, that's the whole, you know, managing by walking around and all that kind of stuff is getting out there and talking with the people. Don't just talk to the supervisors because the supervisors have a narrative that they're going to tell you. Whether it's intentional or not, they have a story. Now, that story may not jive with what's going on below them in the work center. And so sometimes you've got to walk right past that guy's office to somebody on the line and go, hey, how's it going? And, uh, you know, when I was still, you know, in uniform, a lot of times the, the seniors would come in and they would have uh, bring different levels in and they would only allow that level of person in the room so that you could speak freely without your senior knowing what you were saying so that, you know, the hope would be that you would tell them the unvarnished truth and that they could actually address things. Um, you know, and as far as changing group norms, you know, you got to get that buy-in. So sometimes it's really good to be able to have individual conversations because, you know, like Jeremy said about being in that class where everybody raised their head and say, well, yeah, okay. And Jeremy's the only one going, yeah, I don't think so. Well, being that guy is extremely difficult and most people don't have the courage to do it. Unfortunately, it's just the truth. And we have all at some point sat in that room and going, I ain't reason I am. And so, but if you can speak to that person one-on-one and you say, what's working, what's not, takes notes. Next guy, next guy, next guy. Compare it all. And then you bring everybody together and go, hey, look, I've got some information here. These are some things that don't seem to be working. You know, what do you guys think about that? You know, these things seem to be working. You know, what, what can we make? You know, what kind of changes can we potentially make to make us all work better together? Um, and also, this also comes back to, you know, someone said something about engagement, you know, and how much people wanted to. When you actually know your people and you know those that just want to sit there and code or you won't know those who would love nothing better than to have a big round robin conversation. And you, you, to some extent, you have to cater to those people to make sure that everybody feels included and not put on the spot or ostracized. Uh, Lee, let me ask you this, because you, you talk about the wall between employees and, and the corporate executives. Can I call that wall management? Yes. Middle management. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, uh, and are, are, but are they not suffering from, as the world is changing, as business is changing, they just don't have the skills. They were not trained in how they need to manage or lead today. I, I would say that's absolutely true. I mean, you know, quite often in organizations, and we've probably all seen it, people are promoted to their highest level of incompetence. You know, we take people and we promote them, but we don't train them to be in that position. You take somebody who's a fantastic technician and you make them a supervisor and they're like, well, I was happy being a technician. I have no idea how to supervise other technicians. Oh, get out of the way. Just let me do this, you know, kind of thing. And so you have to take those people and you have to train them to be a supervisor. You have to train them to be a leader because most people are not just natural leaders. And they, and even natural leaders really could use some refining. So you have to do that and so many places don't. They just grab, you know, they put a nameplate on the on the door and say, you know, go off and conquer. And it doesn't work out well in many cases. And, you know, if, if your organization is big enough to be successful in spite of itself, you know, you can limp on for a while. But in a lot of smaller organizations, they just, they crash and burn. That's why so many uh, organizations don't last. Agreed. Dr. Martha, let's go to you. You know, you bring up an interesting point about middle management. And I think middle management sometimes is a lot like middle class. They get beat up from both ends, right? They have the upper management breathing down their necks, and then they have all the pressure from the people that they're trying to manage. 
And so I do agree that they may very well be part of that wall because so often you see a disconnect between upper management and those in the trenches. So they don't know what's going on. And groups may have norms that are non-helpful, maybe even detrimental to the group's um, ability to thrive or survive even. And if there isn't that communication that Lee brought up, then nobody knows that something needs to be done or what to do about it. So that's so important, communication and understanding what is standing in the way. What is that chasm between those in the uh, upper management and those in the trenches? And that brings me back to a point that you made, Tom, about we've done this for 200 years. What are you talking about? Changing. But, you know, we see that so often change is difficult for organizations and only happens when it absolutely has to. But we have to be careful not to throw that baby out with the proverbial bathwater because change doesn't have to be a complete 180. It can be gradual and it should be gradual unless something more drastic is warranted and needed. I think you'll be more successful as an organization when you start to talk to your people, look at the groups, look what, at what's working, look at what's not working, and start heading in those directions um, that will help you as an organization collectively to succeed. To just sit down and say, yes, we've done this for 200 years, let's change everything. Well, that's an extreme that's not going to work probably 99% of the time. Evolution better than revolution. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Linda, we're almost out of time, but let's go to you quickly. I just want to mention that that, that what's been described by, by Dr. Martha and so forth is something called um, culture renovation so that you don't have to um, just completely, when you renovate your house, you don't tear the house down, right? You, you change pieces of it at a time. So um, if you think about it that way, it, it kind of changes some some people's perspective and regarding the 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 wall between um frontline and top management i propose that that wall really is between the upper management and the middle management and that it's the responsibility of upper management because that message is not getting through because it's not safe for those middle managers to communicate to upper management Wow, and and I agree. <laughs> wow, you're smart, Linda. Uh, and Jeremy, that kind of leads into our discussion for next week, does it not? Where we're going to be talking about shifting leadership, uh, types of power in the workplace. Yes, it does. And that's also going to be episode number 100. Whoever's in the audience, when we start the episode, you're going to have balloons and confetti fall on top of you where you are physically from your ceiling. We don't know how we're going to do it yet. Will there be cake? We're going to do that. The cake will actually come up through the floorboards. We're trying to figure out how that's going to work. But yes, there, <laughs> there will be cake. And I do want to mention a wonderful shout out, which we always love these from Laura. I put it in the chat and I'll read it as a LinkedIn shout out. She wrote, it was uh, yesterday. One thing I love about Seabox Work Cookie podcast is that it's a conversation of professional sharing ideas, experiences, and lessons learned. So much of a conversation that when you participate live, you'll forget it's being recorded and end up on the podcast yourself. Thank you, Laura. We love that stuff. Tom, that's it. Back over to you. We also have a special 
guest joining us, Dr. Ludmila Praslova. Yes, there was a, an article that I came across on types of power in the workplace. We are blessed and happy that she'll be joining us next week. More people, more experts. I love that. And with that, Jeremy, I think it is time to wrap this up. So if you want to count us out. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, everyone. Loved it today, as always. Counting out in five, four, three, two, and one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work Cookie, a Seabock podcast. Don't forget to sign up at seabock.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from experts. Would it be a bad idea to make your most challenging workplace problems go away? Don't forget to check out our corporate, career boost, recruiter, and even student memberships at seabock.com.